Kindred, hosted by me, Kate, and my sister, Jen. In this podcast, we explore our human relationship to the natural world. In connecting to this planet, we also connect to understanding, compassion, and empathy. How can we see ourselves not as separate or above animals in nature, but a critical and integrated part of an active ecosystem? Through conversations with animal advocates, scientists, conservationists, and many others, we look to inspire a new awareness of how and why we connect to animals and nature in order to repair and restore our relationship to the natural world. Hey everybody, welcome back to Kindred. Hey sister, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? Good. Okay. Okay. I got a little kitty cat purring away on my lap here, which is very cozy and relaxing. And per usual, my disclaimer, which seems to be, you know, if you hear animals happening, well, there you go. You're welcome. Um, same for you. Dogs barking, like you foggy right. whistling to be in constant contact. So, you know, we'll see. Quiet right now. So we'll just see All what right. happens. Let's, yeah. let's get this intro rolling then. Exactly. Um, so, but first I just wanted to say a couple little shout outs for uh, ourselves, which is um, if you guys want to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Kindred Pod, um, we've got some good information there. We share extra information. We always have a fantastic sunset picture. So definitely uh hop over and follow us there also you can contact us through our website which is kindredpodcast.co as in co dot or at the kindredpod at gmail.com if you want to email us with all of your um your interest and your stories your questions your grievances annoyances all of those things um like one unless you're like one podcast i listen to if you have an issue with our annoying voices then please uh refrain thanks no thanks (laughs) (laughs) anyway um and just word of mouth people word of mouth it's the old-fashioned tried and true way of connecting and sharing valuable information right this is how this is how we do it yeah, that's definitely the best way for people to find stuff is the if people you trust say, I think you're going to like this. That's how that's how it works. That's what I do. Yeah, I ask people. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. you and I love our podcast. And that's I'm like, okay, I'm bored of my podcast or I'm done. Like, how do we what do you have for me? So yeah. word of mouth is, is the right. best way to go. Um, so, Jennifer, today we have our first return guest. Um, oh, super fancy to have fancy um guest we last spoke with dr kate stafford in an earlier episode called the songbirds of the ocean which was all about the incredible bowhead whale um and we wanted to speak with kate because i had come across this whale while doing other research and read that this animal lives upwards to 200 years old so i thought any animal that lives this long needs to be heard about and i mean Glory gracious, that's a long time, isn't it? It really is. So um, so we will be re-dropping that episode alongside this one. And I do suggest you go back and listen to our first convo with, with Kate, just because just to get some background on the incredible bowhead whale and their sur- 
superlative singing abilities and and the challenges that they're just generally facing today and in that episode we said that we would we check in with kate and get an update on the bowhead whales so that's what we're doing today um but just let me reintroduce her now again dr stafford is an associate professor at the marine animal institute at oregon state university and I'll just read you a little bit of her bio from um, the Oregon State University website. Quote, my research, which focuses on the use of passive acoustic monitoring in the ocean to study marine mammals, is at the intersection of animal behavior and biological and physical oceanography. I use tools from dipping hydrophones to gliders to better understand our oceans. I'm keenly interested in understanding how animals interact with their environment and how changes in that environment drive variability in occurrence, phenology, and habitat use of different species. So um, we wanted to speak with Kate because, you know, she has a long relationship, uh, not only with the bowhead whales, but with the Arctic itself, right? So she you know she talks about the privilege she has returning to that area and she can see the rapid changes that are happening there and tell us firsthand what she's experienced um you know we often hear so much about the melting ice and the effects that it is making on marine wildlife and of course humans and uh we're super grateful to kate for sharing what she's seeing firsthand today so let's head to the Arctic and see what Dr. Kate Stafford has to tell us. So put your parka on, your woolies. Yeah, exactly. Get woolly ready for the permafrost. Yeah. Put on your woolly knickers because it's about to get chilly in here. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll see you at the takeaway. See ya. Dr. Kate Stafford, thank you for joining us at Kindred again today. Um, if you could tell us who you are and what you do and where you're located, that would be great. Sure. Uh, thanks, Kate. And I'm so happy to be back talking with you all again. So my name is Kate Stafford. I am currently an associate professor at the Marine Mammal Institute at Oregon State University, and I'm based in Newport, Oregon on the coast. Well, last time we spoke with you, Kate, um, was in season two, that's episode 11, titled The Songbirds of the Ocean. And if you all out there haven't listened to that episode, I suggest that you do. Um, it's just a really good intro to the bowhead whale, and which is our topic again today. We talked generally about their location, their unique and diverse song and singing ability, and the state of the habitat and the waterways bowhead whales migrate through and operate in. And we wanted to catch up with you, Kate, and get an update from the ice because you're one of a very select group, I mean, from my perspective, a select group of scientists able to get to the Beaufort Sea area and give us lower 48ers uh, a firsthand account of what I am hearing is a rapidly changing landscape of the ice that's the Arctic and what changes you have seen specifically to marine life since your last visit. So let's just start off in terms of geography and location. We are talking specifically about the area off the town of Utgjakvik, Alaska, 
at the very tippy top between the Beaufort Sea and the Chukchi Sea, which are also part of the Arctic Ocean. Is that all correct? It is correct. And in fact, Utkyagovic, which used to be called Barrow, is okay. the northernmost city in the United States. It sits at almost 72 degrees north. Oh, wow. And most people don't realize that the U.S. goes that far north. Um, it is well north of the Arctic Circle. And as you said, it's sort of where the Beaufort and the Chukchi Seas meet. And because of that really interesting oceanography and geography, it means that it's an area that's really dynamic in terms of the animals that occur there, the, the phytoplankton, which are small oceanic animals and fish. So it's it's a very dynamic area. And that's probably why people have lived there for millennia. Well, so we wanted to talk to you specifically, you know, like I said at the top of this, you know, to talk about, you know, what what the state of the ice is in this location and what changes are you seeing since you were last up there? So I've been really fortunate to have been able to kind of resume my research up in the Arctic uh, post-pandemic. And I generally go up to Utkjagvik twice a year, once in the spring to work off of the sea ice edge, and then once in the fall to deploy some of my hydrophones, my underwater microphones, and also study animals in the fall. Um, bowhead whales, as we talked about last time, migrate past Utkjagvik twice a year. Once in the spring, as they're heading towards the Canadian Beaufort Sea or the Canadian Arctic to feed, and again in the fall when they migrate back, uh, heading towards the Bering Sea. So the, the, the sea ice in the Beaufort, in the Arctic in general, um, has changed dramatically over the past 20 years, and it really seems to be accelerating. Um, right now, and we're talking towards the end of January, there should be solid sea ice up off of Utkjagvik. Um, I've just spoken to colleagues who've said that the water is open. Uh, there's ice attached to the shore, but there's open water offshore. Wow. This is highly unusual. Right. Uh, and in the fall now, there's almost never any sea ice. So the, hmm. the Chukchi Sea, which, which is a pretty shallow shelf sea between Western Alaska and eastern Russia um, used to have perennial or continuous sea ice. Nowadays, it only has annual or sea ice that forms and retreats every year. So the ice is thinner, it's younger, and gosh, the Chukchi Sea now is, is ice covered only, boy, maybe five months a year instead wow. of closer to nine or ten. Wow. Wow. So that's just drastic, rapid changes. Um, and, you know, I mentioned earlier when we talked, I, just to go off topic a tiny bit, like what what are you, you, you hearing from the Inuit community in that area and learning about the changes that are happening with the environment and and the the bowhead whales there? Like what's their what are they talking to you about? Um, well, there are, of course, lots of rapid changes, and and I can't speak for the Inupiaq who live up there, but I can tell you what I've spoken with people about. And sure. particularly in the fall, some of the things that have changed are without sea ice, 
when you get wind, because it's always been windy in the Arctic, uh, you can form waves. And in the past with sea ice, the energy from the air or from the wind can't really get into the water. But now with no ice, they're seeing big waves and giant storms in the summer, fall and winter. And those storms are essentially eroding the coastline. Um, they are cutting off roads between different parts of the village. Uh, they are effectively causing people's homes to practically drop into the ocean. So it's much less safe. In the spring and in the winter, of course, uh, people travel on sea ice. They use their snow machines to go out to the ice edge and hunt seals and hunt birds and hunt whales. But the ice is much thinner. Uh, it's not as extensive from the coast out into deeper water. And so that's really changing how people can access uh, what they call their garden, which is the ocean. So it's making it more challenging to hunt uh, and to maintain their subsistence lifestyle. This is not to say that the Anubiak people cannot adapt. This is a people who have been living in the Arctic for millennia. And of course, they know how to adapt and they adapt very well. But given that the Arctic, the most Recent data has suggested the Arctic is warming four times as fast as the rest of the globe, not just two times. Uh, that means that these changes are becoming more intense. They're happening over much shorter time periods. And so for the people and the animals, uh, it means that adaptation is going to have to happen much more rapidly. Um, and whether or not that's possible, we'll see. Um, there was a fair bit of information in the news, maybe a few weeks ago uh, about the US government um, funding, moving a couple of villages in Alaska, not up in the Northwest, uh, away from shore. And that's gonna cost many, many millions of dollars. If you had yeah. to do that with every village along the coast, it would be in the billions. Right, which ultimately means that probably wouldn't happen. They're not gonna move every village off, you know, back onto to land, so to speak. And when you had first said roads, I'm thinking like a dirt road. You mean ice roads. You mean people are living on the ice and it's rapidly thawing beneath their feet, literally. Well, there's two things. So there are, there are dirt roads, gravel roads that link the lagoon system and people's duck camps with main town. And those roads are also the way people were able to access the lagoon or the ocean to put their boats in to go hunting or to go um, up to their cabins. And so those roads are literally being washed out. Um, the other thing, as you said, that are essentially being washed out are these ice roads or ice trails that are built every winter in spring. And it's, it is an engineering marvel. I mean, we think about all these ancient Roman roads that still stand in the aqueducts and how did people build these? Imagine that every single year off of off of Utkiagvik, there are sometimes a handful, sometimes a couple dozen ice roads built by hand by people using picks and shovels and basically making their way from the shore through the rubble, through the heavy ice to the ice edge. And wow. depending upon what happens with the ice, all of that effort can be gone in a day. Right. If they used to be perennial, perennially frozen they did it once and then they had the roads for years and years and years and years and years and maybe had to do a little bit of thing but if it's mostly always frozen and then now it's not hardly frozen right. at all that's a right. lot of work for them uh-huh 
Yeah, but again, people adapt. And, yeah. and really the ice roads or ice trails were used primarily winter, winter and spring and sometimes into summer to get easier access to seal hunting, to whale hunting, and to duck hunting. But I actually should say, sorry, since we're on the topic of roads, you know, to, to get vehicles, to get heavy equipment, to get furniture up to these areas, they have to be either brought in by barges, and that happens in the summer, or people will often, and that's really expensive, people will sometimes drive a new truck up the Hall Road, up the Dalton Highway from Anchorage or Fairbanks to Prudhoe, and then take an ice road across the tundra to go right. to Nuiqsut or to go to Utkiavik. And of course, those roads too are becoming re less reliable, which means that people now have to put their truck on a barge. They might have to wait six or nine months to get it, and it's wow. going to cost them many thousands of dollars. Yeah, wow. I, I, that's not anything I would have even thought about, even for one second. It's just like these things that you don't realize the the knock on effects of 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 global warming. Um, so then, just sort of switching back to that area in the sea, what are you hearing, and and what's what are you seeing that is different in the actual sea up there? So since we last talked, I would say my mind has been blown a couple times up there. Um, uh, last fall and the fall before, uh, I'm part of a big project where we're putting out oceanographic moorings to understand the ecosystem near Utkiagvik and why bowhead whales sometimes stop and feed there in the fall versus when they don't. And that has to do with with ocean currents and ocean winds upwelling their prey onto the shelf and then kind of trapping it. It's called the, the krill trap. And so as part of this, we go out and we do surveys, we do toes, we do net toes for zooplankton, uh, we do visual surveys for marine birds and mammals. And for the past two years, for the first time ever, I've started seeing humpback whales in the Beaufort Sea. Oh, wow. And, you know, humpback whales have come through Bering Strait into the Chukchi for many decades, but they've been limited in the time and space that they've been there because there's always been too much sea ice. Right. Now, with no ice and with humpback whale populations recovering from commercial whaling, they are moving further north and they are staying longer. Oh, wow. And now they're overlapping in time and space with bowhead whales. Uh-huh. So do they compete for the same food? Does that is that a problem in that regard? Do they eat the same things? They do eat the same things. Um off of Barrow, off of Kyagvik, uh, you might have these giant swarms of krill. Now, now humpback whales will eat krill, which are like tiny little shrimp. They'll also eat small schooling fish like capelin or anchovies. But we think when they're off of Kyagvik, they are eating krill. And so that does potentially put them in competition with bowhead whales. At the moment, although native people have been seeing more and more humpback whales, there aren't so many that it might be problematic. But what's really interesting is just this past spring, I was having a conversation um, with a couple of Inupiaq friends of mine, and they were saying there is no Inupiaq word for humpback whale. Oh, so this is a new animal. To Brand them. new to them. Yeah, right. Wow. The other thing that we're 
that we're hearing primarily and, and other people are reporting uh, seeing these animals are more and more killer whales. Mm. So I'm hearing them on all of my hydrophones. More uh, bowhead whale carcasses have been seen missing their tongues and with indication that they've been taken by killer whales. Wow. And so this is another big concern for people in that they're worried about killer whales coming and negatively impacting bowhead whales, beluga whales, and seals. Right. So just for people, just to go over a couple little things about bowhead whales, right? So the thing about the humpback whales being up there is really a testament, and, and the killer whales, that the ice isn't there, is that uh, bowhead whales can cr crack through ice. They've got that really thick skull, right? They've got that big thing on their head that they can kind of push through ice, and other whales don't have that capability. And then, you know, Jen, like you were saying too, like if humpbacks and killer whales are there and just to let people know so generally whales feed on krill and then krill feed on these phytoplankton and zooplankton and this is their this is a huge uh, food source for them so like i think jen was kind of alluding to like what are the big implications then for bowhead whales right this is this is the question yes and that's a really good question um and it's one that I think we don't know the answer to yet. Um, clearly, in um, you know, in many oceans of the world, and, and this is this is a success story, right? Humpback whales are one of the large whale. They're still listed as endangered, but they are one of the species that commercial whalers hammered really up. Uh, I think humpback whales were initially protected in the '30s, but you know, fin whales and sperm whales. We still had commercial whaling into the early uh, 1980s. Right. All of these populations, blue whales, fin whales, humpback whales, sperm whales, were decimated. Turns out if you stop killing whales on a global scale, they can recover. Mm -hmm. And humpback whales are a great success story. Right. So not only are there more humpback whales now, they have more habitat. And of course, you mentioned that bowhead whales can push up and, and break ice, you know, up to a foot and a half thick so that they can breathe. The other thing that bowhead whales don't have that killer whales and humpback whales have is a dorsal fin. So we have three cetaceans in the Arctic uh, whales, bowheads, beluga whales, and narwhals. And they all have kind of smooth backs. And the thought is that was an evolutionary adaptation to living in ice. If you've got something sticking off your back, oh, yeah, it's going to make it a lot harder to go through the ice because you could potentially injure yourself. So when you said killer whales are eating the bowhead whale's tongues, they is that what they go for? Yeah, throughout. So there's many different kinds of killer whales. There's those that specialize on eating fish. There's some that specialize on eating sharks. And then there's some that specialize on eating different kinds of marine mammals. Um, and they don't tend to switch prey. And in general, so the ones who like to eat sharks, they like to eat the shark liver because that's really fatty. Mm -hmm. uh, the marine mammal eaters, if they're going to go after a large whale, they like the tongue mm -hmm. because the tongue is big and fatty and delicious. And, you know, Kate earlier was saying, too, like you don't have any answers for these questions because you were saying that like the Inuit people don't even have a word for uh, 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 this is so new. 
that they don't even have a word for a humpback whale, right? And and also, it's not just the implications for the bowhead whales who are being compromised in their space. And we can talk about the other co spatial compromises, but it's also that now the Nubiac people are having less access to one of their food sources. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, certainly in the spring it is. And so in 2019, so so the Nubiac uh, whale off of Utkiagvik in the spring off the ice and in the fall um, from whale, from boats, from right. um, boats. But access in both those seasons is really important, right? Because you want to have fresh food year round, or you want to have food to put in your ice cellars. And of course, you know, the ice cellars is basically a, a big cellar dug into the tundra that stays or used to stay cold year round, you know, before refrigeration. Right. Um, and even now, you don't have to, it's certainly cheaper. It doesn't cost you an electric bill to have an ice cellar, but ice cellars are also melting um, because the permafrost is melting. So people are losing food and they no longer have a reliable place to store their food. Right. And then just back again to the implications for the bowhead whales, you were talking about, you know, we're talking about food access for them, but what about, because in our last, the last time we talked to you, you know, you were talking about how the bowhead whale and the humpback whale are the singers and they have a very different song. So what does this mean for the bowhead whales in terms of acoustic space? That is a really excellent question. And it's one that I've been thinking about a lot, especially lately. Um, because again, as we said before, these are the two great singers of the whale world. And boy, if they start singing in the same place and time, and some of my data from further south near St. Lawrence Island suggests that they are, given that both of these species are so plastic and adaptive and can change their songs and can make up new sounds, we don't know what that's going to do. I mean, the first thing I think that will happen if they start sounding like each other is those of us biologists who study their sounds are going to get really confused. But from their perspective, does it mean that suddenly if you're a bowhead that sounds like a humpback whale, you have less access to females with whom to mate, or you have poorer communication because you're conspecific, so other animals of the same species, other bowhead whales can't understand you? Um, likewise, what will that do to a humpback whale who's just practicing their singing up north when the following year they head to Hawaii or off of southern Mexico to sing, and they sound funny. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like they have a weird accent if they go to Hawaii, then no one will be able to understand them. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I guess one of the questions that we don't really know is, you know, for these species that sing and adapt their songs, how does that impact? Is it better to be a novel singer and sing something new and then you're either more attractive to females or you're more intimidating to other males? Or does it make you sound a little strange and so nobody necessarily wants to mate with you? Right. I don't know. That's what I was wondering, if it would get more distinctive, if their sounds would get further apart or, yeah, or if it would just sort of, yeah, very, yeah. very crazy to think about the implications. And, and Kate, you talked about in the past episode where, like, you were like, I think you were saying that the the humpback whales are more classical 
you know, orchestra maybe, and that the bowhead whales are like super jazzy and very sort of um, agile acoustically. So, right. Like, but what if they start sounding the same? Oh my gosh. And then will we be able to tell? Because in particular, bowhead whales sing during the winter. So they sing under the ice. They sing when it's dark. You know, humpback whales tend to do this you know, in beautiful tropical places like Hawaii where you can see them. Yeah. Are we going to know who's doing the singing if it's happening in the winter? Right. Right. So basically we can finish now and say we know far less than we did before we talked to you today. <laughs> that's well, more generally that's, the case. Yeah. Yeah. But, isn't, but isn't that, that's the point. And I think, um, you know, all of these new, and you and I, when we talked last, Kate, we were really talking about global warming in the sense of um, the speed in which it's happening, right? It's 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 sort of, you look back through millennia and you can see, okay, there, there was an ice age and then that melted and th- there's some ebbs and flows that happened, but it's it's the rapid rate at which this is happening. And, you know, humpback whales and killer whales coming into the bowhead whales space you know, not to mention what does that, does that stress them out, right? What are they going to move further north? And then what does this mean for your research? Yeah, that's a good question. Because if you if you think about, if you picture the Arctic, you know, the Arctic is a big open ocean that used to be covered with ice. So there's not anywhere that these animals can go, they can move further north, but then they're moving over deeper water, where they may not have prey available to them. And at some point they're going to end up, what, on the other side of the globe? Right. I mean, where can they go? And because bowhead whales are ice adapted, you know, they like the ice. They tend to spend a lot of time in the ice, even in winter. And I think largely they spend time in ice to avoid predation from things like killer whales without the ice there. Uh, it's not clear how they're going to adapt. There have been some really interesting studies in Canada where just by serendipity, researchers there were able to put satellite tags on bowhead whales and killer whales at the same time. And they found that the killer whales really influenced the behavior of bowhead whales, even for a couple of weeks after the killer whales had left the area. They're having a lasting impact on these animals. I get that, yep. What does that do to their access to prey, to their ability to maintain contact with each other, um, to migrate in and out of areas? We don't know. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, we had said too, like, and I don't know, I know there's lots of things. Well, I don't know how, how far North will can krill that they eat live. Right. And what were where, where will their food access end? Um, we don't know. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, the zooplankton or sorry, a lot of, yeah, a lot of the zooplankton that the animal plankton live on ice algae, right? And ice algae are plants that grow underneath the ice uh, and the, the krill will go up and eat them as will copepods, which is another smaller kind of zooplankton. So if you don't have ice, you don't have ice algae. So then you have to have a different kind of phytoplankton, um, you know, which re- rely on sunlight because they're plants. And so right. we do see these these blooms of phytoplankton now in the Arctic, 
that may be allowing krill to eat them or copepods to eat them. But at some point, if we run out of nutrients and we run out of, of ice algae, I think we're going to see what's been called the borealization or the a change in the Arctic where it becomes much more subarctic and much less Arctic. Right. You know, it, it's these these finely tuned ecosystems that when a little bit of something goes out of balance, it changes the whole course of these species way of existing. Right. And I think that, you know, and we're asking everyone this question, um, Kate, and I think the answer is somewhat obvious, but I still want to ask it. And that is, you know, why do you think, why is this, this, this conversation so important and what are the new perspectives or awarenesses that we can gain from this? Well, I think this is important just to let people know that they hear, oh, the Arctic is warming three or four times as fast, but, but what does that mean? Because for most people, I think they think the Arctic is this vast, cold wasteland of ice, and they don't realize that there are people in the Arctic. There are animals that are endemic in the Arctic, that are only found in the Arctic. And so it is a special little part of our biosphere, right? The Arctic is an area that has evolved over many, many millennia to have really specific whales and seals and fish and zooplankton and benthic clams. And humans have evolved with these animals in the Arctic. And, you know, the Arctic really is an incredibly special place. And if we lose it, uh, it's just, I'm not even sure how to express this. It just would be so terrible. One, one way that I sometimes think about this is, you know, when you're driving along a big highway and every single rest stop only has like a subway, or has the same stores and gas stations. And so we're becoming more and more homogenous. Mm. And so you're losing um, like small businesses that are unique and quirky and different and reflect the town that they developed in and the people of that town. If we lose like the special parts of the Arctic, the ice and the animals and the people, then we become a more homogenous, less interesting, less diverse planet, but also a planet that I think is less able to adapt to future changes, right? Biodiversity and diversity in an environment lets you adapt on a planetary scale. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's beautifully said. And um, it is so important for us, like I said at the top, to us down here to hear your perspective because you do have continuity, um, not only, you know, in your research, just your experience being up there. And it's just so important to, because we all hear a lot about, oh, global, there's, you know, global warming is melting the ice in the Arctic. And, you know, like it's, we're so removed from it. And it's such a, it's such a, a thing that we hear on such repeat that just to hear your account um, is, is really important. And I, I very much appreciate you taking the time to talk to talk it through with us because otherwise we we don't get to get the the in the, the the ins and outs and the subtleties that actually end up making a huge impact. 
So thank well, you. Well, and I, I think we need to remember that down in the lower 48, we feel removed from it, but we're really not because everything is connected. Right. We just right? feel like we're not, it, it doesn't have any impact on us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That exactly. is a really important part. Yeah. But right. it does. And, and one of the ways that I think uh, we as scientists need to be better about is making these connections for people. So as things warm in the Arctic or as the atmosphere changes, you know, we've got these different high pressure systems and low pressure systems, which, you know, if you think about the bomb cyclones that have happened in the lower 48, that's all about atmospheric pressure. Um, and as this changes in the Arctic, it's going to influence the continental US. It's going to influence Europe. Um, there are direct connections because we're all on this same globe spinning through space. That's right. Um, we're not on separate planets. Right. That's right. You know? And by the time that the general public maybe does actually feel the extreme effects, it's going to be a real, real bad day. So, um, yes, that's 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 a really good point that we aren't separate. And that's part of our, what Kendra talks about is we're all so intricately connected. Um, so where can we follow you, find you, support your work? Is there anything we can do to support you? Well, so now I'm at the, the Marine Mammal Institute at Oregon State University, and um, we do a lot of really cool research there. And that's one of the reasons I um, moved there is to work with a bunch of other collaborators um, who do marine mammal science in different ways than I do, but then we can bring our different methodologies and perspectives together. And we've got graduate students and we've got um, graduate student fellowships. So you could look up the Marine Mammal Institute online and check it out and see what you think. Um, but I'll reiterate, and I said this last time too, is one of the best ways to support this sort of work is to, you know, think about supporting local organizations that are working to combat climate change. Uh, think about voting at every level, because we have to have leaders who understand that climate change is hands down the greatest crisis that is facing humanity probably ever and you know i think we all kind of like being here and we like this planet and we have you know i'm in a position of extreme privilege being able to go to the places that i can and i'm trying to to share that privilege with other people who might not even want to go to the arctic because i have lots of people who just don't want to get that cold but still want to know about it right and you know, literally, it's a cliche, but think global, act local. Yep. Because yep. everywhere matters. That's right. That's right. Well, I think that's, you know, that's a critical way to support your work. And, um, and you know, again, we so appreciate your time today and your perspective and the work you do, because if you didn't do this work, then we wouldn't get to know this stuff. And, um we just really appreciate the update about our favorite uh, bowhead whale that, again, like I said in the last episode, can live up to around 200 years, which I still am constantly astounded by. So when you're there next, please blow kisses to the bowhead whales from us and um, tell the killer whales to, to just take a beat, maybe head back where you came from. You're all legitimate. It's all cool, but you're stressing our bowhead whales out, and we don't like that. So... <laughs> um, Kate, we're gonna have to have another check-in in another year or two. Just keep checking in and seeing how you're doing up there. And um, you sent some fantastic pictures 
a view on the ice. Um, there's one of an aerial view of you, a tiny, tiny little blue person on this magnificent, beautiful ice. And we'll post those up on our website if that's okay with you. They're they're fantastic. So thank you. Yeah, of course. Just uh, uh, Madison Cosma, who's an awesome colleague of mine and super drone woman, uh, took those. And oh, cool. Sort of like the perspective because you don't realize like you really are just surrounded by ice. Yeah. It's a um, great perspective. And again, one we wouldn't have unless you were willing to share. So we will give that photo credit over. And again, uh, Kate, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. It's so nice to talk to you guys again. And um, yeah, let's do this again soon. Hey guys, and welcome back to The Takeaway. Oh gosh, so what an interview and some, uh, you know, pretty impactful information that Kate talked to us about. Um, you know, I think the bigger overall sort of, I think it's just super obvious, the takeaway for us, and it's almost like, do we really even need to say it? But I just think right. it's important to sort of hit home, like, the idea where she was saying, because we we're talking about krill, right? And how far north are these bowhead whales now possibly in competition with humpbacks and orcas or killer 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 whales, I guess. Um, you know, not just acoustically per, perhaps, but also for food sources and how far north are they going to go? And then she was like, are they just going to have to like peek the top and slip over the other side of the earth? Like how, yeah. how far will they go and and we're talking about a span of time for her for about three or four years i would say the differences that she's seeing and you know you and i were just talking about how you know it's the idea that it's okay for things to change right there's if you look back in history about evolution and humans and, and animals it's like in nature things have always come and go i think her point is it's the rapid change in which this is happening right Right. Um, right. Like how fast can nature even adapt? I mean, people can adapt a little easier, but that whole thing is, and it's just, we don't know yet. Well, right. And, and so many, we just laughed about it, didn't we? Like so many of our questions, she's like, I don't know. And of course she can't answer these questions. Um, and, but yeah, just, you know, again, speaking of humans, she was talking about how people are trying to, you know, move the villages back off the ice, you know, people are living on the ice, basically. Um, and I think that's where the climate change, sort of, when people call it a crisis, I think it's because it's happening so quickly, mm -hmm. um, which is unprecedented, as far as we, you and I are being told by people um i think i think it yeah i think that's the thing is it's just and 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 for and and the fact that it's even f more rapid there than other places right which is um right and then she was saying because like again like i think you had said too if we lose this place we lose everything right so there's that sort of idea of what affects the arctic is affecting all of us and even though we kind of feel separate. She's like, but that's an illusion. You're not separate. Um, right. We're right. so connected. You just aren't seeing, I'm not seeing a glacier melt or skinny polar bears outside my window. I'm right. seeing the same thing I've seen kind of for a long time. Right. Um, the other thing um, I thought was kind of a bigger 
a bigger picture was, you know, the the effects that this is also obviously having on like the bowhead whales, right? And we talked about what's that, what is having humpback whales and killer whales in this part of the ocean and in this part of the Arctic where the Inuit people, Inubiac people don't even have a word for them. That to me was astounding that this is so unprecedented. We don't, they don't, we don't even have a word for that animal in their right. language. Um, but what is this, how is this going to ultimately affect the the evolution and the you know moving forward for all of this these the this marine wildlife like what is it going to change for them and um again we don't know so um yeah and the fact that it it impacts so many people who live there not only us but that whole thing like she, like that was profound to me where she was saying People just think it's just this vast wasteland of ice. It's not. That's right. They've lived there for millennia. (laughs) And and now they're having to try to figure out how to deal with storms, uh, taking out their homes because there's no ice. Yeah. 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 Right. No, you're right. And just the, and there's just such a active sort of living. It's a, it's a, it's living the ice. It's not just a, like you say, a barren wasteland. Um, So you know, just some, uh, just really, it, it was so good to hear from her what what's going on, like firsthand. Like I said, it can really feel super removed for us, not because n- most of the planet doesn't live there. There right. aren't that many people who actually the population is is small. So thank you so much to Kate for joining us again for a lively conversation about that. Um, we so appreciate her her taking the time um and giving us kind of a a day in the life of what what kind of what's going on up there um so again if you guys could please follow rate and review us um and just a reminder that all our links are in our show notes along with our episodes and other pertinent information um you can also find uh more on Kate and her research via Oregon State University's website. And all our links uh, will be on our website, kindredpod.co. So you can go there and find everything you need from this episode. And then uh, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Um, We tend to put a little extra kind of information there. Um, That's kind of fun about the guests and just other stuff that's kind of going on. So it's a good place to keep sort of updated on what's what's going on um again thanks to dr kate stafford and thank you to you guys for joining us today and uh we'll see you we'll see you next time yeah take care all right bye bye kindred is hosted by me and my sister jen produced by kat gaddy and myself sound production and editing by dan cooper Original music by Ellie Grace, and our kindred artwork was created by Lindsay Coffin. Please follow, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And feel free to contact us through our website at kindredpodcast.co, where you can also find links to our socials, Patreon page, and show notes.